Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by telling you where you're allowed to put, where you're supposed to let people in wheelchairs sit on the metro and don't stand right there, even though it's a nice open space. And I know it's so tempting, but there's that handicapped spot right there. It's got the sticker and everything. And when I nudge you and say, excuse me, excuse me, you're supposed to get out of that spot, not just move a little bit more. Anyway, I'm your host. Charles Bobinger coming to you from Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, from Princeton, New Jersey, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going? I'm in awe, Charles. It's, it's, uh, it's going well. You know, there's been a cold snap, which has, I think, uh, contributed along with the end of the midterm grading period to mm-hmm. crush the spirits of the students here. You, you you don't think the spirits of the students there were crushed by Yale's comeback win yesterday? <laughs> that's that's also possible. Uh, it depends on how seriously they take football. Um, or, yeah, or how seriously they take the Yale game specifically. Yeah. Much as Yale itself, we only ever really cared about the Harvard game and whether we got the Ivy League title, not right. really any of the other individual games. Although this year... Yale is 8-1. and one. I think even if we lose against Harvard next week, we still get at least a share of the title, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not not sure myself about, about that last point. But, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, looking to the future, uh, seeing Yale turn around and perform so much better than it was when we were there is... Uh, right. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a bittersweet thing. I hey, suppose. they won our senior year in Harvard. Right, but the the but every other year was it was it was that surrounded yeah. by three years of losing and then ten years of losing on the other side. So right, yeah, that was that was not great. Hey, we we'll, we still we can lose every year for another decade and we'll still have the winning record against them. So right, right. This is fear, honor, and interest <laughs> bringing to you the things you care about most, which is to say. Ivy League football standings. Uh, well, because nothing is a tangent, though. Uh, your your recommendation there to live in the past and remember our Yale College's past glories and to take some comfort from the accomplishments of uh, men we share nothing with other than our Y chromosome, our skin tone, and the college we went to. Uh, is a pretty good segue for where we are in America that's, right now. That's true. The theme of today's podcast is America's future. Um, on this podcast, we're not big on trying to predict things because that's kind of a sucker's game, even for people who know what they're doing. Um, but because we do want to talk about where America's going and where we want it to go, there will have to be a little bit of um, extrapolating where things could go. Um, this week, for example, uh we just had the elections in New Jersey and Virginia for the, the off-off year of 2017. And um, uh, Nate Silver was sort of doing that, pulling his, ter- his, ter- uh, pulling his hair out um, and lamenting the state of punditry uh, in advance of the elections because uh, his golden rule of polling is that when whichever direction the polls are going to air on, it's going to be the opposite of what conventional punditry says. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you saw that in Britain this year when they said, oh, there's always shy Tory voters. So obviously the Tories will do way better than the polling. And then the Labour did much better. With Macron, they were saying, oh, even though he's up by 20 points, he could still lose because there'll be this gigantic missed part of uh, all of these nationalist populist voters. And then he wins by even more. And then we get to the Virginia race where he delightfully played a clip of the entire panel of Morning Joe saying that Gillespie was going to win. And then Northam won by nine. Um, So, I mean, that's one of the inherent issues with punditry and why using numbers is generally better. And Nate Silver uses the numbers and he actually has access to all of these numbers and knows what he's doing with them, which we do not. Um, but that said, we would we do love to discuss America's cultural issues and where things might be going. So, uh, David, from where you're standing at an institute of higher learning, what are you getting right now about the sense of America's future? What do you well, see from the students around yeah. you? Is the future bright? Yeah, that, that's that's the direction I was going to go in response to your question. 
Um, I actually was meeting with a friend uh, for dinner the other night and talking about grading. Uh, and so he, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm teaching, uh, I'm doing a teaching assistantship in a very large class and I have two sections of that. So a fairly good sample, at least of that class. Um, he's in a much smaller class on the middle East. And so it's a very different student body and, um, he's in a much tighter relationship with the professor leading that course. And the professor told him that, you know, as they were going through grades, um, that the professor has noticed a stark shift in the cognitive capacity of the students. I mean, to put it very bluntly, um, their ability to articulate their thoughts, uh, has declined. He claims mm -hmm. over the last 10 years and, um, assuming just for the sake of the conversation that, that, that they're, that, that he is accurately, uh, diagnosing something, um, you know, that it's not just a, it's not just a, he's not just a crazy old curmudgeon and that there's something going on. And the question then is what that is. And, um, you know, one obvious culprit could be, and this seems plausible to me, uh, and this reflects part of some of what I saw in these papers was, um, the oft discussed lack of attention span, mm. you know, that to the extent that we are now coming upon, you know, a generation of young people whose, um, interaction with information is heavily mediated by apps, social media, you know, the internet and the kind of sliced and diced content, um, that one might find there as well as the constant demand on attention. So that not only are you absorbing and interacting with very, uh, chopped up bits of information, but you don't have time to even process the chopped up bit of information you've just engaged with before the next one is, you know, grabbing your eyeball and pulling you to the next thought. And, you know, in discussions and with the papers that I read that unfortunately, you know, that hypothesis seems to be reflected in what I, in what I saw, uh, which was just a lot of, a lot of great insights and a lot of great thoughts and very few of them, uh, carried out, you know, sort of fully fleshed out and investigated. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thought and it's kind of a negative one because this is a powerful structure that we are allowing to be laid on top of the world, framing our perceptions and, um, you know, with Google reader, long dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm one of the Google reader shall rise again, lost cause romantics on this. Um, you know, there are, they're just not, uh, there aren't necessarily good signs for how this, um, structure can be made to work for people. If it is true that, um, you know, the Twitterization and Facebookization of information is having this kind of effect on our ability to think. Um, the other thought is a, sort of a delicate one uh, to express, but I think is a fundamentally much more positive development, which is that Princeton has, according to um, a couple articles I've seen over this time period, done a tremendous amount to bring in students who are from less privileged backgrounds. And to the extent that these two things could be related, that students who are from less privileged backgrounds, who are potentially less prepared to be at Princeton, um, to the extent that they would be the cause of what I'm seeing and what the professor was responding to, um, that's actually a very positive thing because assuming, and this is a big assumption, assuming that they are getting the support that they need, um, to deal with the mental stress of 
you know, coming and being somewhat unprepared and getting, you know, not great grades. Um, if they are then able to take advantage of the tremendous resources that the university provides to improve, then that's tremendously beneficial and a very positive uh, step forward for the country. You know, that, a, that, a, that, a, that an institution like Princeton that is so phenomenally wealthy that it, its endowment may indeed be taxed. Who knows what's going to happen uh, with the tax bills, you know, moving forward. Um, you know, that this institution that claims to be, or at least this is the Woodrow Wilson uh, school model, or motto rather, um, in the nation's service and the service of all nations. Um, you know, now if it's actually living up to that, and trying to bring people in and, and lift them up, then that's very positive. And it's, you know, it would lead to some stressful, uh, you know, midterm grade reports right. for the students, but uh, ultimately, hopefully, is, is very, very right. positive. And what you've articulated there is they have great insights, but they're not expressing them well, which is an important point to make because this is an elite institution that is very difficult to get into. It's sort of a gatekeeper of higher society in a certain way and you know I, I could imagine some people not necessarily any of the 12 people who listen to this podcast but i could imagine some people saying oh you're just taking people from underprivileged backgrounds and giving them this princeton degree but you're but but they're not as talented as the presumably white men that are not getting in um but what you're saying there is you know various structural elements have failed some of these students in the past but they have the raw talent that if it's dealt with properly, it will um, do well. Is there, do you have any idea whether these students in question are, are they freshmen or later or long? Because... It's a whole mix. Okay. A whole okay. mix. Yeah. And for some of them, you know, this is just getting a little bit uh, into the weeds in a way that maybe people may not find interesting, but I mean, the, Oh, please. You know, that, that ship is shale. That ship has sailed. <laughs> that, that's, that ship has shaled. That ship has shaled. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's how I feel yeah, whenever so I'm drinking from fracked water. Yeah, they're along for the ride, I guess. Anybody's with us now. But um so this was uh this was a dilemma for me <clears throat> in grading because uh I had taught a class in in my department which was cross-listed uh history and near eastern studies a couple of years ago. And I don't remember having any qual and having many qualms in how to grade those papers because um it's there was it's just relatively straightforward it's like what is the student trying to say and, and did they say it effectively whereas in this class it's in the english department and it's on american cinema mm. and so you know i'm i'm a freelancer effectively uh and that's not worth you know, I'm not going to try the patience of our of our listeners as much as to actually go into explaining how that came about. But in any case, the the content of the course and what the students are actually expected to do is so much more subjective than my experience in the past. And so, you know, the question is what what are we trying to do here? And if the student, you know, the students are supposed to interpret. And they're supposed to come up with the original interpretations of the movies that we are watching together as a class and to have a certain amount of rigor in applying the terms that are given in the textbook on how to, you know, how to analyze film. But it's mostly a, you know, what do you think about this? And now express that thought in the form of an argument and do it clearly. And so, you know, I gave the students a lot of leeway in terms of like the th the thoughts that they came up with, um, you know, because I my point was not because then then I would have been in dangerous territory. I would have been saying like, well, you didn't come up with what I thought about this movie, and therefore I'm going to give you a bad grade. I didn't want to put myself in that position, so um, I focused basically entirely on uh, the form, you know, that they were discussing, and. It was, uh, you know, for some of them, it was not pretty. Um, mm. And it was it was a, just a bit of a surprise. But but again, all of them showed the capacity for right. deep insight. They just, for some of them, that deep insight was like a flash in the pan. And it went nowhere um, because they didn't do the work of right. 
taking that insight and that by the way pulling it out into the into their the front of their conscious mind and holding it there and pulling out the the implications of it and then doing that in a rigorous way and recording it uh you know on the paper and that has i mean in terms of other interpretations you could have there it's you also, when you don't know the class here, that could mean a couple of things because it could be a freshman who hasn't gone through some of the rigor of how to express themselves. Could also be a senior who's just mentally checked out. Um, right, right, plus, exactly. No, sorry, I lost the thread there. The, yeah. Your question was about the class year, um, and part of the problem that I that I I felt bad for some of the students there who you know who are coming necessarily not necessarily from the English department. I, I mean, just, like, they might not even come from English speaking country. Well, everybody, yeah, so that's not, uh, you know, they're, at least in my preset, in my sections, um, my sample of the students, you know, some of them uh, seem to have other languages, right? Uh, but their English is very good. And that's yeah. not a, that's not an issue. Um, but uh, I do sort of feel for students coming from other disciplines, right? Who, um, you know, but it's like, <laughs> Any, this, you know, students from other disciplines who are coming in from the perspective of, you know, there's a right answer and a wrong answer to like chemistry <laughs> and, right. you know, there's no value in my interpretation of the nature of organic chemistry. <laughs> I just have but to, how does the sulfurous smell make you feel? Right. Right. So, you know, it, it, however, it is true that even in those disciplines, at the cutting edge, you are talking about a combination of creativity and insight with rigorous right. communication. You know, so even for those, the difference actually breaks down when you're talking about the cutting edge. But but for an undergraduate coming from a background of like there, you know, there's a deep body of knowledge, and I in order to even have a place at the table, I just have to memorize a lot of, you know, right answers. Right. Um, and not only memorized, but like presented with a problem to solve, I have to solve for the right answer, you know, to then come into the English department and be like, okay, there are a million different plausible answers to this. Your job is to persuasively communicate right. and it doesn't matter which answer you pick. You just have to pers persuasively communicate your point. Um, and some of them, I, I, I think were upperclassmen coming from those types of backgrounds. And I felt a little bad. Um, and I tried to tell, I mean, I just tried to warn them that that wasn't, you know, like whatever they were doing in their other, uh, classes, you know, now they're in a different context. Um, and it seems, it seems to me, like this is a long, <laughs> even for us, I think this is a pretty long detour. It's only from, been 20 minutes so far. <laughs> from the, <laughs> you know, from the content of something that seems directly relevant to the actual topic. But, um, but I've always felt that education in this manner is a precondition of our democratic experiment, because to be able to think clearly and communicate clearly, regardless of what you think, regardless of the content of your thought, because in this vast country, in this vast republic, you know, the content of people's thoughts will be very, very different. Um, but being able to step out of, or being able to at least practice, like stepping out of the domain of your familiarity and, and confidence and expertise and persuasively communicate what you think to someone. Yeah, that strikes me as, as an essential exercise, sort of a mental exercise to prepare for the demands of just being a citizen. Um, in part because as a citizen, even if you're not doing that yourself, even if not, even if you're not like stepping out and trying to persuade other people, you're still receiving that. And so, you know, you have to practice the one in order to be like a good recipient of the other, like in order not to be, you know, fooled constantly in order to be able to evaluate other people's efforts at persuasion. You know, if you've done it yourself, then that's, 
good practice. So right, you can see the tricks. Yeah, you can see the tricks. And so I, I see this as, as fundamentally extraordinarily important um, for the future of the country. And again, you know, based on the midterms, the future is uh, cloudy. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of the midterms, I, midterms, I was just exactly I was talking about <laughs> grades. Go us. Speaking of other midterms, yes, the future is uh, is very bright. Yes, I mean you were talking about how do you convey great insights with clarity and concision, and what better place to switch to than the president's Twitter feed? Um, oh, I mean, I've it's actually. In terms of how you can get very, um, uh, very specialized in what you do and really have a particular format just down, um, some people have been noting that now that Trump gets 280 characters, he's less coherent because he'd mastered the 140 character form. And, you know, when you hear him speak out loud without a teleprompter, he just, his mind just goes off into weird places and it never he can't hold a thought. He has no attention span. Yeah. And 280 characters lets him do that um, when he otherwise would have been forced to stick to a particular idea. And that's, I mean, it's a useful insight overall that um, there's a saying that restrictions breed creativity. And sometimes restrictions yep. make you better because um, it's the, the old line about if, if you'd given me more time, my report would have been shorter. There's just so much, um, there, there's just so much fluff that we sometimes put into things. As, which we do when we're speaking out loud, as we are now, because we're not editing what we're saying here. We don't go over this afterwards, record various things to insert, and make it the absolutely perfect podcast exchange. I know it may feel that way, but that's not what we do. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting set of thoughts. And um, I'd seen the same sort of comments about Trump's Twitter and it is reminding me now, I hadn't thought about it in this way before, but it's reminding me now of um, his performance in the debates, which to me, the strongest, you know, attack, sort of the the strongest attack ads <laughs> of Trump were just like the long stretches where he had to fill time with with his own words. Because he could, he just simply could not do it. It, it. It's the perfect way of exposing the perfect way of exposing his, uh, you know, fatuousness was to just give him like two minutes to talk, and the difference between fifteen seconds when he could bluff his way through something, and um, someone who was sympathetically minded towards him might, you know, might then sort of take that 15 seconds as hinting at something actually meaningful, you know, when he was forced to fill uh, any longer stretch of time, it just was manifestly obvious that there was nothing there. And, you know, and that the whole country saw that because his, you know, the numbers, his numbers plunged after every debate and, um, you know, then they can, you know, whatever uh, horrific, uncanny process than than followed but but exactly now it's like with the you know it's two 280 character twitter um it's more of the same where his initial you know shorter tweets uh sort of punchy and they express some they express something but then you know now it's just like he's just rambling even more incoherently Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I've noticed the same. Just wait but... until somebody points out to him that you can write something, then take a picture of it, then post the picture. <laughs> and then imagine what his tweets would be. That might be too complicated. No, I uh... probably would be. Um... Well, and part of it, you know, it's just, it's it's hitting the endorphin button. You know, it's the rat right. in, the, in the lab, you know, hitting the lever, getting the, getting the shots of, uh, you know, sugar and fat and salt or whatever. Well, did you see there was um, somebody who had done an interview with him, I think, before he ran for president? I really wish I could remember who or where I even read this. But they were talking about um, Trump was showing them his he like tweeted in the middle of the interview for, you know, to demonstrate something. And the reporter also watched with him as the likes were just sort of skyrocketing and the retweets of what he said were, were just going up. And the reporter was noting this really is an endorphin rush of seeing what he sees when he tweets. That you yeah. can really see how somebody gets addicted to this and addicted to this form of praise. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, um, I think, I mean, that, that goes back to the earlier hint in our conversation about the future of, you know, younger generations coming up, uh, under the influence of social media, but having that temptation there, uh, to express ideas in ways that will get you those likes and retweets. Um, you know, essentially you just, you just said that, um, having constraints and, you know, restriction is a spur to creativity. Um, but you know, it's also the case that the rule, when the rules of the game are established, you know, you, the rules of the game then warp the style, you know, so it's something that just happens and it either is, has a positive effect or a negative effect. And so if the, if the structure is a good structure, then you can call that distorting effect, you know, a spur to creativity. And if it's a bad structure, then you call it distort, you know, you call it a distortion or warping or, or whatever else. And, um, you know, again, like the type of type of comment that is, that catches attention and is shared and, and interacted with engaged with on Twitter, you know, these are not deep thoughts and often they're very intentionally misleading or deceptive thoughts. And, um, so that's not a, that's not a good thing at all for anybody. Not just Trump. Um, that's something that we all, that's a temptation that is out there for all of us. Right. Well, that's why we have to do critical thinking so that we don't get drawn into, just somebody who's just blatantly lying, which, I mean, people who've listened to this podcast will have a good sense of the fact that we think Trump blatantly lies a lot. Or just or just encouraging us to, to think simplistically and stupidly. For, for example, um, you know, Roy Moore, right. a miserable, terrible person who struck me as an obvious, you know, whited sepulcher weeks ago. Um you know, is now, uh, revealed as, you know, disgusting hypocrite and child and child abuser. But on Twitter, people are throwing the word pedophile around and they're throwing it around presumably one, because it's fewer characters than child abuser or is it? Um, okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, in my head, it just seemed shorter. But it's just one word, and so it's an easier word, and it's a heavier word. So it hits, you know, the, you know, you write it, and you feel like you've done something, you know, by making that accusation. But it's just, you know, it's just smoke. It's there's no light there. There's no, you know, it's it's hiding the truth because he is not, you know, a, a pedophile is something very specific, right? You know, and a fourteen-year-old is generally going to be out of i mean i don't really understand i don't know the condition that well but my understanding is that pedophilia has to do with prepubescent people and a 14 year old would be far past that point right well yeah potentially um and that, that that's basically my point and obviously neither of us are experts on any of these subjects of you know developmental uh sort of child physiology and you know puberty on the one hand or um uh, you know, mental disorder on the other, but, you know, pedophilia is a mental disorder and it has an, you know, it, it has a, it interacts with behavior, but there are pedophiles who don't abuse children. Right. Yeah. You know, there are people who, you know, have, who suffer from an illness that they, uh, control and we want those people to get help and control their destructive urges in the same way that we would want, you know, someone who, um, is addicted to stealing or, you know, whatever else, uh, sort of whatever tendency to destruct, you know, destructive behavior, we want them to get treatment for their problem. And that is different from someone who is acting on whatever impulses, whether they are, you know, from whether they're rooted in mental illness or not. And especially the fact that, again, there's a salient distinction where, um, you know, obviously it's a case by case basis, but you know, someone who's attracted to 
you know, young women who have gone through puberty who are still far too young, that's different from someone who is attracted to children. And mixing the two to just puff ourselves up with our hatred and righteous, you know, anger at this guy is not, you know, it's, it's not thinking clearly and whether, and I'm, you know, this is my church lady routine now, um, where I get on my soapbox and talk about how great it is to think clearly. Um, you know, if, if it, if it gets the good people of Alabama to not vote for this guy, then, you know, maybe, okay, sure. I'll call him a pedophile too. But, Mm. um, you know, but then we're talking about demagoguery and the erosion of our ability to think clearly and communicate because words lose their meaning. And then, you know, we're undermining our future. And this seems like the future that we're, that we are already in. I mean, it's, it's the future that we're moving towards. Uh, yeah. We've we've hit that. Yeah. We've hit that point where what, where what you say is correct has stopped mattering. And that's how you end up with Trump. Because yeah. he can say all of these things, well, oh, you're taking him literally, but not seriously, exactly, or any of that exactly. other nonsense, which just comes off being an excuse to tell blatant lies. And then a lot of people are just, I mean, I did that sign off a few weeks ago about hashtag Fox News on my, you know, news feed on my phone. And it's, I mean, shortly after we did that was when the Paul Manafort indictment went down. And everybody was sharing how the Fox News network was covering hamburger emojis instead of that story. Yeah. And right. now, obviously, they covered it later in the day, but they gave it a lot less coverage than they should have. And after the Virginia election this week, Fox News decided to spend only it was somebody had calculated it to be something like six minutes between 9 p.m. and 10 and 11 p.m. talking about that. And instead, they're just like, well, let's relive memories of how glorious the election was last year. Um, I mean, it's, it's, that's really disturbing and you have to have your critical thinking hat on so that if you see Fox news and you see that you're like, well, they're blatantly just doing propaganda here because I know that when I used to watch MSNBC, which was a few years ago, um, I always sort of had my critical thinking hat on when watching somebody like Rachel Maddow, who I, and I knew Rachel Maddow wasn't trying to. Um, wasn't trying to just do propaganda, but she does have a lean and she does get ahead of herself on right, some right. things. And I would watch these things critically and say, well, that's not really a fair criticism of that particular yeah. conservative. That's not really fair. And that's what we all need to be doing. And I think if you watched Fox, you watch Fox News with that attitude, I mean, you could just stop watching Fox News. It's kind of horrible. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, that leads us to the question then, David, which is we've got ourselves into this very rough situation, which, you know, we'd been sliding into for a while. Uh, I remember with George W. Bush, they had a lot of times where he talked about his tax cut. Oh, the vast majority of the benefits will go to the middle class. And that was just not true. And people say, well, but he thinks it's true or he feels (laughs) like it's true. Or he would tell stories that didn't quite add up. And people would say, yeah, but the point of the story is true. And, you know, that may seem like a harmless little compromise back then, but you can see how that attitude, especially as through the Fox News filter, has snowballed into where we find ourselves now. And so, I mean, David, do you have any ideas what it usually looks like or what it should look like for a country to get out of that situation? Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, my, you know, I took uh, Steve Skoronek's. First of all, let me just say the last point I made about the you know, pedophilia. Um my citation there is actually a uh, Yale near peer of ours, um, Brian Earp, who oh. drew that distinction. He's he's a really interesting guy, and I recommend that everybody follow his work on um, ethics and medicine and philosophy. Um, so that being said, um, another you know, so Yale staying with Yale expertise. I, I took uh, Stephen Skoranek's class on that the what Ameri- you mean you and i took it and we're in the same section <laughs> well uh so you will recall charles i will it's chronic's class I was, i'm not talking to you i'm talking to our audience charles you could you, you still could have used the first person plural that's all well, i'm saying anyway anyway um <laughs> you know and skronic um you know you'll correct me if i am misremembering his framework 
But, you know, he talked about, um, you know, he talked about these themes of destruction and, you know, regeneration. He had a four, um, he essentially sort of a four-part cycle that American presidential politics goes through. Uh, right. But for him, he wasn't talking about the, the country as a whole. He's talking about, right. uh, I mean, he, he, his focus was not the country as a whole. His focus was the presidency. um, the presidents and presidencies that emerge from, uh, moments of crisis and, um, his point, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, which I found fascinating and unsettling in a way was that when the cycle unfolds, you know, you have um, a new style of governing that is proposed by a president emerging from a crisis. So, you know, the collapse of um, the status quo ante and the emergence of the Republican Party in response to the slave question, uh, <clears throat> and then, you know, that... Republican Party that saved the Union, uh, bathing itself in glory, and then having successors come and claiming the mantle of Lincoln and that, you know, uh, that power and effectiveness, um, then encountering new crises to which the old answers no longer offer satisfactory um, solutions, and then a new power emerges, a new proposal emerges, and uh, that becomes the new um, dominant narrative that presidents and presidential candidates are forced to interact with. And you have, you know, new successors, new standard bearers, uh, until a new crisis leads to that, you know, collapse of that old model. So this is a very sort of, you know, it's a very old way of... Uh, looking at politics um i mean it's sort of it's aristotelian or haldunian uh, whichever you know if we want to expand our framework away from the western centric i won't say well anyway moving forward uh so one of the points that i found uh, interesting and unsettling about this is the idea that the new solutions that are proposed are just sort of plastered on top of the old ones and the old problems don't go away. You know, none of the, none of this was about actually like solving problems fundamentally. It was about a narrative that was appealing and that worked to persuade people to support the new approach. So like, you know, Reagan, emerged as the revolutionary successor after the, you know, after the new deal lost its oomph. So, you know, FDR came as a revolutionary president and then Reagan came after him, but you know, Reagan's, you know, there's a difference between the, um, the success of the, of a proposal for a new narrative and the reality of policy and government's role in people's lives. And so the old problems don't go away. It's just that the new, uh, the new claimant just presents a new way of looking at the world, uh, that people either do or do not respond to. And right. with Reagan, you know, people did respond, but you know, Reagan's response didn't, um, didn't actually solve any of the fundamental underlying problems that had been left over from the previous system. They just persuaded people to think in a new way and, and feel something different. And it kind of that created was... some problems too, because some people took that too much to heart and then refused to accept that sometimes the government does need to help with things. Right. And that, that's not even, um, I mean, I wasn't trying to make that, pointed a comparison between like, you know, uh, left wing and right wing politics, because, um, you know, because on the other hand, you have, you know, Obama, if you want to fit him into this 
narrative, and I don't. I, don't I actually, actually think Obama kind of is where the narrative comes apart a bit. For reasons well, I'll, I'll say it in a moment, I think we might want to clarify for our listeners um, a little bit more about the steps in this cycle here to um, to just to just briefly cover it as we remember it from this class twelve years ago. Um, <laughs> that you you start off because you, you're in a crisis because somebody screwed up, and then you get the new guy who starts the cycle again, and he rejuvenates it a bit with either a new theory of governance or a new way of looking at things, which could be your Lincoln, your FDR, your Reagan. And so in the let's let's take Reagan as our example. So you would end up with Reagan as the guy who comes in and changes things. Then he's going to have some successor at some point that just sort of does the same thing, in his case, George H.W. Bush. Then you get the wild card, which is the person from the other party who, due to his own charisma, manages to win, even though the environment isn't as beneficial for him as you would think, which would be your Bill Clinton. Or um, in the New Deal era, that would be your Richard Nixon or your Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and then you end up with another successor, which would be your George W. Bush, who ends up being a disaster and is such a disaster that it essentially ends this part of the cycle and creates a new crisis that the new person comes in and changes. This would have fit perfectly had Obama been more successful because George W. Bush would be the screw up who kept applying um, the Reagan ideology long after it had ceased to be relevant. And, you know, through some of his neglect in cases like Katrina and the world economic collapse, leads you to a charismatic new person, which would be Barack Obama. But Barack Obama, as we've discussed before, wasn't a leader as much as he was an administrator on a lot of things. He came up with his health care plan, which didn't radically, we, I mean, as much as it was a, a big deal, as Joe Biden might say, um, it was nonetheless papering over a lot of the problems in the existing system. And so Obama never really created a new revolutionary wave. And then we ended up with Donald Trump, who would fit the wild card idea as a person who's who seems sort of sui generis. But um, but man, I mean, I, I kind of feel like Obama is where the cycle breaks down because um, but, but Professor Skoranek did also say that um, the cycle seemed to be weakening every time it went through. Um, such that Reagan got a lot more done rhetorically than he did as a matter of policy compared to, say, FDR. Right. I was about to make yeah. that point that, you know, the, uh, I mean, the Glenn Becks of, you know, the Bush administration uh, in preparing the ground for the Tea Party and this crazy nihilistic Republican rejection of, you know, quote unquote, the administrative state, right? Um uh, you know, they didn't look back to Reagan, you know, St. Reagan in the same way that we are referring, you know, the, the same way that this model would suggest that they should. They were looking back to, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson and saying, like, that was where socialism and destruction, you know, entered and started to corrupt our society, that you know, that we need to get back to, uh, you know, the Gilded Age, like lack of any sort of progressive uh, regulation of the economy and society. And so I think, um, I mean, to some extent, you know, you could quibble with the model uh, that Skoranek is describing, but, you know, Reagan himself, uh for all of his rhetoric, as you said, you know, if you compare Reagan as president to Reagan as hack for, you know, the anti-Medicare forces, like his presidency actually represented the sort of acceptance by the right of the, um, of the New Deal, uh, because he didn't you know, as, as much as he, um, as much effort as he put into crushing labor and, uh, you know, opening up the economy to global market forces and corporatism, uh, you know, he certainly didn't roll back, uh, social security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, so you could call it, I mean, yeah, you could, you could say that that's, um, a, 
reason not to even bother with this Skoronic model. But to me, this goes back to what I was saying about uh, the model itself or what I remembered from learning it. And maybe this was just my sort of kludge, mental kludge to, to make the model seem more persuasive, um, which is that you know, the, new, the new guys come and they just talk and they don't, you know, their, their, their effectiveness as presidents is proposing an idea of a new system. And it has to have some relation to reality, um, but it's mostly about persuading people to see the world in a new way and right. papering over some of the problems of the past. And, and that would take us back to the problem with Obama, which is that he ran on a campaign that really uplifted people's spirits in a difficult time, but he didn't have a fundamentally different way of looking at anything. It was a lot of... Um, it was a lot of, of of specific policies in specific places with no real overriding theme. And now we have Donald Trump who gave people an overriding theme. And his overriding theme is horrible and terrible and wrong and incredibly destructive. But he had right. one. And, I mean, my greatest fear is that if this model were to hold up, that Donald Trump does rec does represent the beginning of a new era, that this is just where we are now, that we're just going to have to all lie about everything all the time and have no <laughs> right, regard well, whatsoever for truth and just stoke every division whenever we can. Right. And this is, and this is where you get, you know, Democrats saying like, okay, what we need to do is recruit Oprah Winfrey as our presidential candidate um, because everybody likes her and it doesn't matter what she says when she's running. She's just a likable personality that people will respond to for a number of reasons, both personal, you know, personal story, personal charisma, and, sort of checking identity politics boxes. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's like, it may be proven effective uh, as politics, in which case maybe that's exactly what Democrats need to do. But it, I think, comes from what you were just saying about uh, a period, you know, a, a new era in which people don't actually listen to anything and they don't think reasonably and logically they just um respond reflexively to their to their guts and that may not be a new era i mean that's the sort of the point right I mean, george w bush was getting people to say that a lot during his exactly. time that's where the whole colbert report came from it's exactly it's a reflection of uh, it's just a reflection of of a reality we um choose to ignore at times uh, when we feel more confident about our political culture. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's unclear and actually reading the tea leaves in, in trying to understand the Virginia election, uh, some of these same issues come up because you have some people saying, you know, this is Ralph Northam who, you know, what was the reason? Like, <laughs> there are all these Democrats saying, you know, digging his grave in preparation uh, for the results, who were just blindsided uh, by this massive win that he got. And then, how do you explain the how do you explain the pessimism on the one hand, and uh, then the victory on the other? And some people are are explaining the victory by saying. Uh, this is because of his left positions and the left, you know, the organizing of, you know, democratic socialists who um, got some really high profile wins in the delegates race. Um, and so their story is that this is about, you know, the rising tide of um, sort of the, 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 the rising tide of left politics and the rejection of the mushy middle. Um, but then you have other people who are like, what are you talking about? Look at Ralph Northam. Right. He's the definition of the mushy middle. He is middle. the mushy middle. Who is it? And, the, and I think it was my father. Responded to. My father last night was saying that he has all the charisma of a bag of wet rice. And <laughs> my immediate reaction was, you can't even put your iPhone in it to try to try it out. It's that flavorless. Um, and uh, yeah. Oh, I. 
Nate Silver, to jump back to him um, yeah. and his numbers, he said he, – what he always does is he says after – because he's a Bayesian – Whenever something like this, ha whenever an election happens, she says, okay, does this change our priors? Does this change what we already thought was happening? And he said, based on all of the numbers, based on the factors in Virginia and all of that, um, the Ralph Northam winning by nine points is exactly what you would predict on a generic ballot of Democrat plus nine. And right now, the nationwide generic ballot is Democrat plus nine. So he said that really... Um, to the extent you get excited about this because you want the Democrats to do well next year, it's because this confirms what the polling was already saying. But it's not anything new. He says, in fact, if you look at a lot of the races that have happened, with the possible exception of Georgia 6, but I think even that one fit in pretty well, um, what you've seen everywhere is reasonably consistent with the Democrats being in position for a pretty big wave next year. Um, because even though they may lose some of these individual races, they're losing races in very red districts and they're losing it. You know, the question is, how much did they lose by? Well, they normally lose it by 20 and this time they lost it by 11. Well, if the Democrats get to add nine points to all of their races in every single house race, that's pretty darn good. And yeah. so, I mean, that's where you can talk about all of these factors. Oh, the, the democratic socialist helped with this. Oh, well, it's because he was flavorless. Oh, it's because his opponent did all of these things. Well, there's another thing that 538 has occasionally delved into, which is the question of do campaigns matter? Or is it just always about fundamentals? Is it always about, um, yeah. you know, is, is it always about just the fact that, well, it's a Democrat plus nine environment? And I mean, I think there, there certainly will be cases where individuals' characteristics will matter, Um like, I don't think like in Alabama's Senate, like in Alabama yes. Senate, or I was thinking of even just Trump last year in the sense that um, based on some of the fundamentals, just the fact that the White House tends to switch hands every eight years, um, you know, Trump should have won. I mean, a generic Republican probably would have won the popular vote and not had a 79,000 vote winning margin across the three determinative states while losing by three million. Yeah. I mean, it was Trump's horrible personality that made that even remotely close. And it was, I mean, issues that Hillary Clinton had that led it to that led her to end up losing so narrowly. So it's, it's yeah. possible that, you know, all of this stuff we talk about, all the punditry, it's possible. None of that has any meaning or relevance. And well, it has I'm, to do well. I'm very sympathetic to the claim that the punditry has no meaning or relevance. Um, but, you know, separating punditry from analysis of the numbers, you know, if, right. we, if we make that claim. And, but the thing is that the numbers, you know, they tell you a lot, but they don't tell you everything and they don't tell you. Well, they also give much. you ranges and people get upset if, if, you know, if the range is four points, that could be the difference between one. Like if, if the polls were all showing Northam plus three and they were, and the range was four points, then that gives you anywhere between Gillespie plus one and Northam plus seven. And so that's what right. the numbers tell you. And people don't like that. People want to hear a binary yes or no who is going right. to win. Right, right. And that's, and that's the, you know, I, I totally agree with your making that point. And, um, you know, Nate Silver himself didn't, uh, you know, it was not like he was saying, like, it's definitely certain that Northam is going to win. Just look at the numbers. And part of the reason he was saying that is that it's like, well, you know, the polls show him with a significant but not overpowering lead. And that is, you know, that is like the, distinct from, for example, New Jersey, where it's like all the polls show double digits. And so you can either, show, you know, expect a massive blowout or a comfortable win. And so there's no real reason to talk about this race anymore because, you know, we know what's going to happen. Whereas with, Virginia, it's like the polls show a comfortable lead, but not an unassailable one. And so you could either have, you know, Gillespie squeaking through sort of Trump style. And that was the whole point. Like that was the whole Gillespie's, that was Gillespie's whole um, theory of the campaign is that that's how it was going to work, you know, or a blowout on the other side. And you got, and the, we blowout. got the blowout, which, which and I am so thankful for. Yeah, not, it's not surprising or, you know, it's not that surprising, but it doesn't tell you why the blowout happened. I mean, necessarily, we don't have those numbers yet. Um, and so the question of, you know, um, 
who whose energy went into making the blowout happen. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm not even sure if that's, I mean, the question might also be why was the environment Democrat plus nine? Right. Which, um, you know, maybe activists have something to do with helping create an environment like exactly. that. But I mean, seeing as that the Democrat plus nine is a polling result that's nationwide, it probably isn't on the level of local get out the vote activists. Who, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like they don't do anything useful because there are close races and in close races, they make the difference. Yeah, well, and, um, you know, close races and activists make the difference in the sort of um, final countdown. And then there's this broader environment where people have been organizing since the end of the last site. I mean, since you know, November of 2016, people have been organizing to say, like, we cannot let this stand. We have to do something to to stop this, right. to stop this man and to stop, you know, this uh, slide. That I mean, we were... One of the one of the women who won a seat in, I believe, it was New Jersey on Tuesday was a woman who was activated because the Women's March happened. And then her local assemblyman or representative, whatever level it was posted a sexist meme about them getting home in time to cook dinner. And she said, I'm not okay with that. I'm going to run against him. And then she beat him. Exactly. And so if the, you know, if the women's March hadn't happened, he wouldn't have made that stupid comment and she wouldn't have been activated in that way. And maybe something else, you know, would have done it, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe, okay. Maybe things would be different if they were different, but they weren't different. They happened the way they happened. And if the, if the environment, when you say the environment is Democrat plus nine, it's not as though that means the Democrats get plus nine in every single race. In some races, they might get plus 12 and some, they might get plus six. I mean, you know, it, there's a range of things that will happen based on various factors. But, I mean, it's a big deal when you've got a nine-point lead on the generic ballot. Right. Um, yeah, and I think one of the one of the things I think is, is, made, is different is um, just that people – and this, this may um, correspond to the – specific nature of Hillary Clinton as a candidate um, and people's sense of resentment about that. But I think also that the overwhelming narrative of, you know, let's just coast through this in 2016, that people had to, you know, fight like hell um, on the left on even just the middle. I mean, people who supported Hillary as a bulwark against madness and chaos. Um, you know, those people had to fight like hell against this narrative because it's like, Oh yeah, you know, don't worry about it. Look at the, mm-hmm. look at the polls. The polls are all saying she's definitely going to win. Right. This is what, this is what I call punditry, right? That kind right. of stupidity. Um, and uh, now you don't have that anymore. Now you have people saying like, we must take ownership of our society that's and true. that's a new um a new moment you know that we are still in the middle of and um whatever its excesses again trying to talk about the future uh whatever its potential excesses it seems um very healthy in general and it seems like we're i mean i i'm i'm bullish i mean I'm, I'm bullish on America, at least in the short term. Of course, in the long term. Um, right. I mean, Trump will have caused a lot of damage to our long term standing in the world. Yeah. And, and lot, he's, he's disassembling a lot of things that made America great. Well, and yeah, we can't make America this, great again article, unless you make it not be great. So I saw this article about um, lottery winners and you know, I read it in the New York Times and there's it was, it was all these stories about people, you know, winning money and some of them won like a hundred thousand dollars and some of them won two thousand dollars and some of them won 140 million dollars and all the reactions that they took to this it was, a, it was a really interesting article and it was um a lot of people being responsible and like trying to be responsible with their money and you know this one family in california like made a foundation um that they've started dispersing money to like latino uh community organizations and stuff like that and it was a very very positive article for the most part and then it it ended with this guy who was a bartender 
retired bartender from the Bronx who won like $7 million. And he's like, you know, I want to be able to pass something down to my family. I want something that my children can, you know, can benefit from. So he bought property in the Florida Keys. And it just made me so depressed thinking about this because like, that's where our country is right now. I mean, there's this wonderful, you know, outpouring of civic energy, um, around things like, you know, the Virginia races and all the down ballot races, um, that, you know, young people are taking ownership of our society. And, the, you know, those margins were outstanding, you know, the 24, or, um, 18 to 29 and then 29 to 44, I think were the, um, categories. And it's like plus 30, you know, yeah. to, to Northam. That was, that was very encouraging. But then you have these, you have this dead hand of a previous generation that isn't thinking seriously about the future. And this guy who invested money for his family in the Florida Keys, which are practically already underwater. Um, and no matter what happens, even if we stop burning fossil fuels right now, um, you know, this guy might still be alive to see the seas rise and the intensity of storms render it, you know, basically impossible to afford rebuilding on, you know, those low-lying areas, low-lying and far-flung areas. And, um, you know, that struck me as something, this is, we've been talking for a while, and I, you know, don't need to spin up a new cycle of conversation, but there's a way in which, you know, democratic politics, Democrat with a small d, um, you know, it's just a, it's an unending war between the generations because, um, you know, the boomers had their hopes and dreams, um, conditioned, you know, throughout their lives by their parents and grandparents who continued to vote. And like, as, as we take ownership in our generation of the political process, there's no, I mean, there's no such thing as taking ownership because nobody owns it. The only, you know, everybody collectively owns it as they participate. And so the fact that like these, you know, racist, vile, hopeless people in articles like the one, um, that came out in Politico talking about this old steel town in Pennsylvania where they, you know, had a very unpleasant, uh, acronym for yes. NFL, for example, um, you know, those people will continue to vote and poison the future of their own children and grandchildren. And even this guy who, you know, this very sweet seeming man from the Bronx, um, you know, basically wasted that money. Well, um, I mean, this is on the assumption that China doesn't try to turn it into an airstrip and have to buy the rights from him. Very nicely put. Very nicely yes. put. At that but, point, you know, it'll be the 87 dash line. 87 dash line. We'll get it all the way out there. God. Oh, God. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're talking about the future, you know, American futures. And I think we're, I think we're good for the near term because of this upwelling of responsibility and ownership by a new generation. Um, which is a good, which is just, that's a good thing. And the smart commitment of resources to integrate that, that generation into American society, um, that's encouraging and it's turbulent and it's going to involve a lot of C's, you know, given on their midterm papers. Um, but, uh, but it's encouraging, but then, you know, there's no. So room. what you're saying is both um, your students who are having trouble expressing themselves and the Florida Keys are going to be buried beneath the seas. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. What I'm saying though is that the threat of seas, the threat of uh, being submerged in a sea. Uh, is, is must be taken seriously and pretending that they deserve to be higher than the sea when they in fact 
did not earn that um, is a recipe for for disaster. Right. Well, let's call it a note there. We've gone a little bit over our hour mark today, but I think it was worth it for the last couple of puns I got in. That was, um, that was tremendous. Oh, I'm thank you. very proud of you. I'm just going to have a quick sign, a very quick sign off today. I'm going to let everybody know that uh, here in D.C. we're getting the preview run for the Mean Girls musical. And I just went and saw it this week, and I thought it was absolutely tremendous. Um, I thought the choreography was fantastic. The set design was fantastic. The singing was fantastic. I thought the songs were great. Much better than one of those standard, we'll just do a comedy that also happens to have songs. But because this is the preview run, I think it doesn't actually properly open on Broadway until April of next year. So I want to crowdsource a little bit. Does anybody know when the soundtrack to a Broadway musical comes out relative to its release? Um, Certainly one of the 10 of you listening to this has some idea of when that happens because these songs are stuck in my head and I have no place to listen to them. And with that, we'll call it a week.